Amen. All right. I'm glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 9 is what we're going to look at today. Last week we looked at a sobering text where Pastor Peter went on the offensive against these dangerous false teachers that were wreaking havoc in the church that he loved so much. They were secretly introducing destructive heresies. They were enticing people with sensuality. And they were leading them toward judgment. Not salvation, but judgment. What we saw last week was not unique or specific to Peter's audience in the first century. It's not as if suddenly in the first century amongst Peter's audience there are false teachers. No, no, no. False teachers have been around from the very beginning. Starting with that sneaky little snake in the garden. They were always amongst God's people in the Old Testament. We see with the prophets. Jesus warned the apostles about false teachers in the Gospels. The apostles warned the churches of false teachers in the epistles. False teachers have always been around. And brothers and sisters, they are still around today. And they will be until the Lord Jesus himself returns in power and glory to vindicate his people and to destroy his enemies, including these false teachers. So we made application last week. We tried to divide it into two groups. We made application for students and for teachers. For students, I said, number one, don't be gullible. Don't be gullible, be biblical. These false teachers are out there and they are coming after you. It is folks just like us in this room that the false teachers are targeting. Don't be gullible, be biblical, know the truth so that you'll be able to spot their subtle, sneaky distortions of that truth. Secondly, I said, don't be sensual, be holy. One of the methods of the false teachers is to appeal to your flesh. To appeal to the lusts of the flesh that wage war against your souls, as we saw in 1 Peter. So if a teacher is inviting you into a freedom to do things that God forbids in his word, run away from that teacher. That's a false teacher who would guide you into sin, gladly guide you into sin. Run from such teachers. Don't be gullible, be biblical. Don't be sensual, be holy. Jim Shattuck said, the believer's primary defense is a working knowledge of and unwavering obedience to the authoritative word of the apostles and the prophets recorded in the Bible. Knowledge of, obedience to, the word of God will guard you from the schemes of these false teachers. That's for students, for teachers. We, we basically reference Paul's advice to young Timothy. Number one, don't be clever. Don't be innovative. Don't be cute. Be biblical. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He says, and you need to do this because a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And they will gather together teachers for themselves who tickle their ears. Don't be cute. Be biblical. And don't be raunchy. Be righteous. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to your life and your doctrine. Your life and how you live as well as your doctrine. Be righteous, not raunchy. This week will be our last week for a while in 2 Peter. We're going to take a break for a special Advent sermon series. I talked to you about this a little bit last week. This is the image that we're going to use. We're going to study stories in Genesis, and we're going to see that every story whispers the name of Jesus. All the way back from the Garden of Eden, we see the name of Jesus being whispered throughout the biblical narrative, and we're going to try to zoom in on that a little bit. But this week, in 2 Peter, Pastor Peter is going to bring to our remembrance three stories, three stories from the Old Testament, three stories from Genesis, in fact, that clearly demonstrate the reality of God's judgment against sin. These false teachers not only deny the coming judgment, 
but they will experience the coming judgment. They deny a coming judgment that cannot be denied. We're going to see today in the text that God has established a track record, that judgment is certain. But listen, Pastor Peter isn't a preacher of judgment primarily, right? He's a gospel preacher. He's a preacher of salvation. So what you will see is the other side of the coin as well. God also saves those who trust in him, those who repent of their sins. Part of what we're going to see today is that the gospel is a double-edged sword. There's the promise of eternal life to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is the promise of eternal condemnation for those who go on in their sin. So right off the bat, the question is, which are you? What about you? Will you go on rejecting Christ? Or today, will you repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Now, before we read the text together, I want to encourage you to be readers of the Bible. I feel like in a lot of ways to to handle this text today is going to be pushing uphill. Uh, for me, for a lot of you, because Peter is going to assume a certain familiarity with the Old Testament that I don't know that I can always assume. He's going to make references to stories from Genesis that I don't know that all of us in this room are necessarily familiar with. And so let me encourage you to be readers of the Bible, all of the Bible. Like, don't just be familiar with the, the easy stuff that comes naturally to you, that's familiar to you, and that sounds good to you. Be familiar with all of the Bible. In fact, We're almost done with 2022, right? And as we enter into 2023, let me encourage you to set up a plan. Make a plan and a commitment already to be reading the Bible. Read all the way through the Bible in 2023, in fact. I was reading just this morning that only one in five Americans have read the whole Bible in their lifetime. Only one in five Americans have read through the entire Bible in their lifetime. Only 60% of evangelicals have read through the whole Bible. That means 40% of us in this room have not read the whole book. Let me encourage you to be among the 60% who have and who do. In fact, I was talking with an elderly member of our church just this week, and she was talking about how she was about to finish a little bit early her reading plan for the year and get through the Bible uh, this year. And she was talking about how she's done that since she was a teenager. How over and over again, year after year, she's used some kind of plan, some kind of method to read through the entire Bible every year. Can you imagine Can you imagine what 60 or 70 years of that would do to your heart? How the word of God would just accumulate in your heart and in your mind and be there ready to access at any given moment? Oh, friends, don't neglect the book. Read the book. Become familiar with the book so that you can see the face of God in his word. Let's read together in 2 Peter chapter 2. Like I said, we're going to look at verses 4 through 9 today. Then we're going to take a break. We're going to do Advent sermon series And then at the first of the year, we'll come back and pick up in verse 9 and carry on in our study. This is God's word. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly or the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, 
we thank you for the gospel. Today, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you for the hope that you bring to us of eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to rejoice in this hope today. Even as we grieve over the reality of lostness in our world, in our town, even in our homes. We know that there are billions who live without hope and face only the terrifying expectation of judgment if nothing changes. Oh Lord, use this text in this hour that we spend together this morning to change everything for someone in this room. Bring them from darkness into your marvelous light. Open their blind eyes. Unstop their deaf ears. Take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Oh Lord, save. Oh Lord, raise the dead and do it for the sake of your own name. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So before we dive in and look closely at the text, it may be helpful to see how this text is structured. It's a giant, complicated, if-then argument. In the original, there's really only one if. It's right at the very beginning. But most English translations insert or supply a few more ifs. If this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then this is certainly true as well. That's the way we're going to go. Pastor Peter is going to pile up an Old Testament argument before driving home the application for his audience in verse 9. In fact, verse 9 is the key to the whole thing. Verse 9 is the application of Pastor Peter's point. But let's start in verse 4 at the very beginning. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, God did not spare those angels. That language is the language of judgment. He did not spare them. It flows right out of what we saw at the end of the text last week. In fact, look back at the end of verse 3. He says, There, that is the false teacher's judgment from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels. In other words, this is all flowing together. He's talking here in verse 4 about angels who sinned. As if to say, look, even angels, even angels who sinned experience the judgment of God. Could you or any person presume that we would be spared in our rebellion if God did not even spare the angels? Now, there is some debate about what Peter is referring to when he talks about these angels who have sinned. Basically, two camps. Some say this is talking about an early cosmic fall. Maybe, maybe talking about the fall of Satan and angels with him. That's what some people would go to. Other people would go to Genesis chapter 6 and say this is a specific reference to a story in Genesis chapter 6. Read it with me. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, many scholars think that's a reference to angels, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I think that the best evidence, especially from Jewish tradition in the first century, is that what Peter is referring to is Genesis chapter 6, which is particularly germane to Peter's argument about the sensual nature 
of the false teachers, right? If these angels don't get away with sexual sin, then how in the world do these false teachers think they will get away with this? Probably a reference to that sin of angels mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. And when they sinned, the text says, they were cast into hell. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now what's interesting is that Peter uses a super strange word for hell here that has thrown commentators for a loop for 2,000 years. Peter doesn't use any of the biblical words for hell or the place of the dead here. In fact, what he uses is a word adopted from Greek mythology. The word behind hell here in my translation is Tartarus. Tartarus, straight from Greek mythology. John MacArthur says Tartarus, which in Greek mythology identified a subterranean abyss that was even lower than Hades. Tartarus came to refer the abode of the most wicked spirits, where the worst rebels and criminals received the severest divine punishment. Now, lest we freak out that Peter is teaching Greek mythology here, or some kind of blending true doctrine and false doctrine in the process, let's remember that biblical writers occasionally use words from their culture to communicate important truths. Not, not to endorse everything surrounding Tartarus, but to communicate an important truth. Jim Shaddix says Peter probably chose a familiar idiom to relate to the large number of converted pagans among his readers, as well as to distinguish it from the place of final punishment often referred to in our English word as hell. So it seems like Peter is making a distinction between the place of final judgment and some kind of intermediate state of punishment and judgment and restriction. In fact, you'll see that sense of the intermediate state in the next phrase when Peter says, he committed them to pits of darkness or gloomy chains, some of your translations say, reserved for judgment. So hell in this text might not be a great translation, especially since we consider hell as a place of final and eternal punishment. Whatever Peter means by Tartarus, he seems to be talking about a place of immediate containment for these sinning angels, immediate containment and immediate restriction, immediate punishment where they await the final judgment. That seems to be what's going on here. But the point is that even the sinning angels have gotten away with nothing. They were immediately bound until the coming day of final judgment. Does God treat sin lightly? Absolutely not. He talks about these sinning angels. And then up next, Noah's Ark. Look at verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here's Noah's Ark, not the cutesy cartoon imagery of a little boat with some little animals, the weebles wobbling as they go. But no, the biblical narrative of universal sinfulness, of God's decision to destroy the whole world with a flood. This is not the way we depict it on murals in nursery rooms. The whole world of sinners perishing in the waters of that flood, in the flood of God's judgment. God did not spare the ancient world because of its sin. Look at it in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, we keep reading from where we were a minute ago. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, 
and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of this land. From man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Judgment, a righteous God against a world full of sin. But notice the very next verse, verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Right in the aftermath, in the very next breath, as God declares his judgment on the whole world, he also declares his mercy and grace toward Noah. I told you that Peter is not just teaching about the certainty of judgment in these examples. He's also teaching us about the hope of salvation. God preserved Noah along with seven others. Imagine that. Imagine that. I'm not sure how many people lived on the earth before the flood. I did some research into this, and the scholarly opinion varies dramatically. From a few hundred million to four billion people. It's not a few people lived on the earth in the days of Noah. A lot of people lived on the earth in in the days of Noah. And I don't know how many, but a lot more than eight. Can we agree on that? A lot more than eight, and only eight were saved. This is a lesson that carries over from last week. Many will follow the sensualities of the false teachers. Many will be led astray by their destructive heresies. Jesus said, many will walk the broad road that leads to destruction. But few will be faithful. Few will walk the narrow road. Brothers and sisters, let's be part of the few. Let's be part of that few who walk faithfully, who trust in the Lord, even if the whole world goes astray, even if everyone else goes astray, even if hundreds of millions walk the broad road, let's be part of the few who keep the faith, trust in Jesus, and live in obedience to him. And if we are part of that few, we'll feel like we're all alone, which is probably exactly how Peter's audience felt. Probably like Elijah felt in 1 Kings 19. That's a text that the Lord has used in my life over and over and over again. After the great moment of victory on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, Elijah goes to the depths of despair in 1 Kings 19. And three times in that text, he says to the Lord, I, I only remain, and they're seeking to kill me. I am the very only one left who is faithful to you, Lord, and they're trying to kill me. We can feel all alone when we're part of that few. But you know what the Lord says to Elijah in that moment? He says, I have kept 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Not only only has the Lord spared a remnant in the midst of that great rebellion, he's also met with Elijah in the midst of his despair. Elijah is not alone. The Lord is with him. Elijah is not alone. 7,000 have been kept along with him. We are not alone, brothers and sisters. Even though we may be the few, we are not alone. And we need the church as a regular reminder that we are not alone. Do you experience that when you come in here sometimes on Sunday? You've lived this week uh, seeking to be obedient to the Lord, seeking to be light in a dark world. You've lived this week maybe experiencing some heat from your neighbors, your coworkers, and your friends because of your identification with Christ. You live this week trying to walk the narrow road that leads to life and you feel like you're all alone. 
Friday afternoon, Friday night, Saturday night, you feel like you're all alone, and then you come in here on Sunday morning and you realize, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Look around. There are others. There are others who are with me. We are together. We are not alone. We need the local church when we feel like we're alone. And listen, friends, one day, we few, we few will be gathered together with a multitude that no one can count from men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation throughout the course of redemptive history. And we'll gather around the throne and we'll sing worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. You are not alone. Be part of the few. There's another little thing that comes up in this text that is interesting. Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Now some of you are super familiar with the Genesis account and you'll say, well, wait a minute, I don't read that. In the whole story of, of Noah building the ark and the rescue of God, I don't read that he was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't like stand up and proclaim. There's no recorded sermon of Noah preaching. The Genesis account does not state specifically that he is a preacher of righteousness. Though, if you read the Genesis account, you could infer it. right? How in the world would a guy build a boat for over 100 years in a desert without raising some questions, right? Hey, weirdo, what are you doing? And he would say, I'm building a boat. Why? Because God told me to do it. Why? You need a boat out here because it's going to rain. What do you mean rain? It's never rained. How does a guy live with holiness, which the Bible does articulate, that Noah lived with righteousness? How does a guy live with holiness in such a radically fallen culture without raising some questions? Noah, why, why don't you do the things that we do? Why don't you talk the way that we talk? Surely, as we read through the Genesis account, we could infer that Noah had plenty of opportunities to proclaim righteousness, to proclaim grace and mercy from the Lord. But Genesis doesn't state it that way. But once again, we see Peter relying on Jewish tradition here, which does spell out really clearly in a number of different places, Noah was a prophet. Noah was a proclaimer of good news. So Peter seems to be relying somewhat on those extra-biblical Jewish tradition accounts and affirming that some of the things in there are true. And one of the things in there that is true is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So here's the second application from Noah's life. Living faithfully will make us part of the few. And as we live as part of the few, we've got to be loud. Let's not be part of the few faithful ones. Let's be preachers of righteousness in our broken world. Let's be saying to the masses around us on the broad road, come get on the boat. Come get on the boat and be rescued from the coming judgment. Come get on the boat and be saved from eternal damnation. A flood is coming. and Jesus is the boat. So invite your neighbors to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. A couple of things we learn here. God will judge, that's for sure. And God will save, that's for sure. He rescued eight as he destroyed the world. Next up, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 6. It says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting to me that the story of the judgment of these two ancient cities is one thing from the Bible that our culture has hung on to. In conversations, still to this day, you might hear this occasionally. 
Oh, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. You might hear someone talk about fire and brimstone. It's also from this text, this story. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19 is a quintessential story of the judgment of God upon the sin of man. The judgment of God upon the sin of man. Jesus made multiple references to it. The apostles make multiple references to it. It's the quintessential story in the Old Testament of God's judgment. And Peter is using this story like he used the others about the fallen angels and about Noah. He's using this story to illustrate God's track record of judgment. That he will judge the wicked and that he will rescue the righteous. But there's a unique aspect of this story that Peter pulls out. Look at the second part of verse 6. He talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says, having made them an example that the to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. It seems that part of the purpose here was to serve as a warning shot to the rest of mankind forevermore. That the Lord will not sit idly by and let cities devolve like this. That God will bring judgment, not just at the end of time, but in real time. God will bring judgment on this kind of sinfulness. I read a super provocative quote that was incorrectly attributed to Billy Graham this week. It was actually said by Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, after she read a vivid description of American sinfulness in a manuscript of Billy Graham's book, World Aflame. She's reading him describe the gross sinfulness of American culture in his day. And she said this, if God doesn't soon bring judgment upon America, he'll have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's provocative, right? When we look around at our culture and we read the things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed it by fire, destroyed them by fire, maybe the gap is not very far. God doesn't soon bring judgment upon America. He'll have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, Billy Graham's wife says. I don't know about that, but I do know that our culture is headed toward disaster. And I do know that God's judgment is not idle. Like Noah, we need to be calling people to get on the boat. Like Lot, perhaps, we need to call people to get out of Sodom. Because what Jesus said in Luke 13 is absolutely true. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, to be fair, Jesus is not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah there, nor is he talking about the flood. He's talking about a real-time example of judgment that happened in his day. And he says, unless you all likewise repent you will all perish. Brothers and sisters, we need to call our friends and neighbors to repentance. But we need to be living in repentance ourselves. Repent of our own sins and call the nations to repentance. One of the most difficult parts of this text is Peter's insistence that Lot was righteous. Did you catch that in the text? Righteous Lot? Like as you're reading through Genesis 18 and 19 and what follows, do you say, Lot was a righteous man? Well, if you know some of that story, you would probably say, I don't know, I don't know about this. It's, in fact, not long after he gets out of Sodom, which he didn't really want to leave in the first place, not long after he gets out, he sleeps with his daughters. Righteous lot? Why in the world does Peter say this? It's a hard time to get there simply by reading Genesis. We don't talk about lot this way, but Peter did. But even as we read Genesis, there are hints of Lot's righteousness. 
One is in his hospitality for those strangers who came to his house. He was ready to welcome them into his home, right? But the men of the city, the wicked men of the city, wanted, them, wanted him to send them out so they could have their way with these travelers of his, these guests of his. And he refuses to send them out, sends his daughters instead. He was caring for the needs of travelers, which sounds so bizarre to us in our Western way of thinking. But from an Eastern mind, a Middle Eastern mind in particular, hospitality was a high value. And you would do whatever you could to spare and care for visitors in your home. Maybe we see some of Lot's righteousness in his hospitality. Maybe we see some of his righteousness in that he did obey God and leave the city. And he did obey God by not turning back and looking like his wife did. Maybe there is some obedience of faith in Lot as he leaves the city and doesn't look back. Maybe, though, the best argument from the Bible about the righteousness of Lot is found in that negotiation between Abram and God before all of this happens, right? In fact, look at it with me in Genesis chapter 18. This may spark some of your memory. The visitors uh, that also went to visit Lot came to Abraham first. And in verse 23 of Genesis 18, it says, Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is talking to God here. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous persons in it? Far be it from you. Look closely at verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? You catch that? In this negotiation, as Abraham goes to bat with the Lord on, on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, would you wipe it away? If there were 50 people, you're not going to treat 50 righteous people in that city the same way you treat all the unrighteous in this city. Far be it from you, Lord. You're not like that. You don't wipe away the righteous with the wicked. No, you spare the righteous and you condemn the wicked. That's the way you operate. And it goes on. The Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the place on their account. Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose that 50 are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city for, because of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. You remember how this goes? He keeps negotiating with the Lord, getting the number down to just a few, right? You won't destroy the whole for the sake of the few. And the Lord declares by bringing Lot out, I don't treat the wicked and the righteous the same way. He gets Lot out before he destroys the city. That would seem to imply the righteousness of Lot, which I think we've got to argue is righteousness by faith, not self-righteousness. It's righteousness by grace through faith. He trusted the Lord. I don't know how to explain all that, but there are hints that Lot was righteous. In fact, there are hints even within this text that Lot was righteous. Look at how Peter gives the clearest argument for Lot's righteousness by saying that he was deeply affected by the sinfulness of the people around him. Look at the end of verse 7. It says that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Zoom in on that. Lot's heart 
and Lot's mind were grieved and troubled by the sinfulness all around him. I wonder if that's the case for us. I think there's a really important application here for us. Do we experience torment by what we see and hear going on all around us? Kevin DeYoung really presses on this when he preached this text and he said, the things that should torment our souls are now entertaining our souls. We have grown insensitive toward impurity. It's the danger when we live in a broken world, in a fallen culture, in a sinful culture, is that we would become insensitive toward impurity. When I was a little kid, I learned a song and said, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful what we see and hear. More on this when we get to the application. Here's the heart of Paul's argument, uh, Peter's argument, though, in verse 9. If, 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 verse 9, then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let me just stop there and make an observation. Which does he mention first? The judgment of God or the salvation of God? It's the salvation of God that he mentions first. And in Greek, when something's important, you put it first. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He wants to draw our attention to God's gracious salvation of the righteous. Peter brings his argument toward application. He's established already the Lord's track record of judging the unrighteous and rescuing the godly. And now he tells his friends, the Lord knows how to do this with you as well. Remember, Peter's intention all throughout this text is not just to condemn the false teachers. In fact, I believe that Peter would actually hope that this letter would lead to their repentance. That this letter would lead to the repentance of these false teachers and to their salvation. But Peter also wants to encourage the faithful followers of Jesus to whom he has been writing to say, stay the course, keep the faith, finish the race. It may look like those false teachers are winning. It may look like the faithful Christians are losing now. But we've read the end of the book and we know that a new day is coming. Tom Schreiner says, even if the righteous are completely outnumbered, they will prevail because God is faithful to his people. That's a hopeful message for you and I. A hopeful message that should steer us toward faithfulness to the Lord. So believers, followers of Jesus, be encouraged. Be encouraged because the Lord knows you and he knows how to rescue you. Be encouraged because he has done it before and you can trust that he will do it again. Faithful Christians, be encouraged. Rebels, be warned. This text is a warning to those who are rebellious against the Lord. False teachers and all those who would follow after them, be warned. The Lord knows you. And the Lord knows how to punish you. He has done it before. And he will do it again. This text is a double-edged sword offering hope to those who repent and believe in Jesus and promising condemnation for those who go on in their sin. Here's some good news. Every one of God's children is a former rebel. Every one of us who are God's children used to be a rebel against God, used to be an enemy of God. But God in his graciousness and kindness redeemed us, rescued us, saved us. He opened our eyes to his holiness 
He opened our eyes to our own sinfulness and the reality of judgment that we deserve. He opened our eyes that we deserve only condemnation forever. And he opened our eyes to the glories of Christ on the cross in our place, dying for our sins and rising again in victory to give us life. All of us were once rebels, but God gave us faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us repentance to turn away from our sins, and we did believe, and we did repent, and we are believing, and we are repenting. There is hope for every rebel, for every child of God was once a rebel. Maybe today is the day everything changes for you. Repent and believe. Here's a summary of the lessons from this text from Dick Lucas. This is super helpful. He says, number one, no one is exempt from judgment. Not the angels, not the world, not the wicked cities. No one is exempt from judgment. Number two, judgment, though delayed, is real. Those those angels were confined until the final judgment. It was delayed, but it was real. The world was spinning out of control for quite some time before the Lord sent the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah had developed a reputation before God sent the fire. Judgment, though delayed, is real. Number three, God's inevitable judgment can be escaped. Ultimately, through faith in Christ. Exclusively through faith in Christ. God's judgment can be escaped. That's good news. Number four, we are to hold out that offer to others, even if they mock. We offer out the hope of escape from judgment in Christ, even if they mock us. Even if for a hundred years, as we build this boat, they call, call us crazy. Number five, the pattern of that judgment has been revealed. God has established a track record. And number six, living a godly life in an ungodly world will be hard. He never promised it would be easy. In fact, Jesus, even as he talks about the broad road, he says it's easy. The broad road is an easy way that leads to destruction. The narrow road is hard and few find it, but it leads to life. Living a godly life in an ungodly world, and we live in an ungodly world, will be hard. And it's worth it. Because this world will be judged. That's a good summary of the lessons in this text. I want to make specific application, though using a couple of the ideas in this text. But first, did you notice that Wednesday, this past Wednesday, the world's population surpassed 8 billion people? Did you catch that? that's 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 a pretty high mark. This past Wednesday, the world's population surpassed 8 billion. Did you know that over 3 billion, well over 3 billion of those people have little to no access to the gospel? Did you know that today, 157,690 people, say it again, 157,690 people today will die without Christ and will enter eternity under the righteous wrath of a holy God. That's the reality. A lot of people out there, a lot of them don't know Jesus. A lot of them are going to die without knowing Jesus. Suffer judgment forever because of their sin. So let's follow Noah in being a preacher of righteousness. Let's follow Noah in the midst of a fallen world where there are only a few who are faithful. Let's be a preacher of righteousness. Let's be a preacher of grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what what do the Marines say? We are the few 
the proud, the Marines. Well, let's be the few. But know that you're not alone. Know that we're in the boat together. That's part of why we get together like this on the regular. But don't be proud. Be loud. Be saying to the world around you, get on the boat. There's a rescue here. There's a judgment that is coming, and there is a rescue here. Be saying to the citizens of Sodom, get out of this town. Judgment is coming. There's an escape. Come this way. Come with me. Come to Jesus. Let's follow Noah in being a proclaimer of righteousness in this world of sin and rebellion. Let's invite people to follow after Jesus. And number two, let's follow Lot in his sensitivity to the sinfulness of the people around him. Let's learn a lesson from Lot, who was oppressed by those things and tormented in his soul by what he saw and heard in that wicked city. This is, this is what the Lord has been working in my heart this week from this text. I don't want to be surprised that the world does worldly things. Like, I should not be surprised at the fallenness of the world around me. I'm not. Fr- frankly, I'm so not surprised that I can shift into it doesn't even bother me anymore. And, and I don't want to go there either. I don't want to be surprised but I also don't want to be unbothered by the sinfulness of the world around me. I want to be bothered, but not angry. I want to be bothered, but not hateful. I want to be bothered, but not violent. And it seems like we evangelicals are missing the boat on one side of this equation or the other. Either we're not, we're surprised. We're like, I can't believe these lost people are acting like lost people. That's crazy. Or we're not surprised and we're like angry and we hate them because of it. We forget that we were once one of them and the Lord rescued us out. So somehow we've got to figure out how to not be surprised, not be unmoved, but not be hateful and be like Lot tormented in our souls by the things that we're seeing and hearing. I read a quote from Lori Frank. She said, we can look at our culture the way Jonah looked at Nineveh or the way Jesus looked at Jerusalem. Some of you don't know enough of the Bible to know how important that is. So read the book this year. Jonah was called to proclaim God's word to a wicked city, a wicked city full of people he hated. And so he ran the other way as fast as he could, as far as he could, because he hated the Ninevites. You can look at your culture that way. And many of us do, and we need to repent. We hate them because of their wickedness. We wish violence upon them because of their wickedness. Or we can look at our culture like Jesus looked at Jerusalem as he sat and looked over that city and wept said, how often I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. And he wept with brokenness over their sinfulness and their rejection of him. He was not unmoved. He didn't say, you'll get what you deserve, just you wait. That's not the heart of Jesus. They will get what they deserve. Brothers and sisters, let's weep. Let's weep over the lostness all around us and let's proclaim the good news. 
And let's stay sensitive ourselves. One of the dangers of living in a broken world is that we would become dull. We would become dull to sin even in our own lives. So as much as we hear this text as a call to repentance for those who are outside the camp, we also need to read this text as a call to repentance for us as God's people. Douglas Moo said, When sin loses its shock value, it can too easily become something we tolerate and then fall prey to ourselves. Why do we not find more Christians weeping and mourning for the sin that rages around us? There are two basic reasons. One, we care too little about the holy standards of God. Two, we care too little about this world we live in. Let's care about the holy standards of God. And let's care about the world we live in. Let's follow Lot in his sensitivity, his brokenness, his torment over the sin around him. And let's follow Noah and be proclaimers of righteousness. Be inviting people to rescue in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us. This is a lot. This is a lot to take in. This is a lot to process. This is a lot to respond to. One thing is clear. You have proven yourself to be holy. You have proven yourself to be righteous and just. And you will punish the rebels. And this is also clear. You have proven yourself to be full of mercy, full of grace, full of love. And you will save those who trust in your son. God, have your way in our hearts. Stir us to a right response to what you have shown us in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name.